the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Zero, zero, nine. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. We have an awesome broadcast for you today. I'm glad you've joined us. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you for listening. We're from the National Prayer Chapel. There's a scripture I want to read to introduce the topic today. It's found in John, the 10th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. In 1801, in Kentucky, there was a sweep of deism. Now, if you go to Wikipedia, and let me go quickly to Wikipedia, it says, 
Deists include a range of people from anti-Christian to non-Christian theists. For deists, human beings can only know God via reason and the observation of nature, but not by revelation or by supernatural manifestations such as miracles or phenomena which deists regard with caution, if not skepticism. There are many kinds of deists, but basically they believe, many believe there is a God. He wound the world up and then he withdrew and he's no longer involved in the affairs of men. He does not answer prayer. This skepticism had spread through the Kentuckians. Now, those who were not caught in deism were caught in Calvinism. And in Calvinism, it was strongly held in Kentucky that a man is the elect of God or he is condemned to hell. That God chooses, that a man cannot repent, frankly, until he is saved. Now, those lies have been taught many times in our culture, in our day, that a man can never stop sinning, that he is covered with imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness versus imparted righteousness. Now, you'll understand much more clearly as we share this story with you today. But it it began to break the hearts of many people in Kentucky because they could not sense the presence of God in their lives and they saw no answer to prayers. Because of this, they felt the, the absence of God and they didn't know what to do about it. So they began to pray. They began to share one with another. There are letters available from Christians writing back and forth to each other, decrying this absence of the presence of God, the shallowness of church, simply a ritualized program Sunday after Sunday, dry and orthodox, with no Holy Spirit presence and no power. And so they began to cry out to God to make a change. That crying out to God, God answered. And he brought about what is known as the Kentucky Revival. We're going to share a portion of that wonderful story with you today because we want to encourage you that if you will begin to cry out to God, he will hear an answer. And I see today's church as basically an event-centered, ritualized worship, a social occasion, and we need desperately to know the presence of God. So, We're going to share that story with you. And as I'm looking for it, uh, we lost it, but we're going to find it again very quickly. Here it is. 
Alexandra, would you begin the story? Yes, and this book is called The Kentucky Revival. And it's a description of an extraordinary work of God that happened in different parts of Kentucky in 1800 and 1801, so just 25 years after the Declaration of Independence. The first extraordinary appearance, appearances of the power of God in the late revival began about the close of the last century in Logan and Christian counties on the waters of Gasper and Red Rivers. And in the spring of 1801, the same extraordinary work broke out in Mason County in the upper part of Kentucky, of which I was an eyewitness, and can therefore with greater confidence testify what I have heard, seen, and felt. It first began in individuals who had been under deep convictions of sin and great trouble about their souls, and had fasted and prayed and diligently searched the scriptures and had undergone distresses of mind inexpressibly sore until they had obtained a comfortable hope of salvation. And from seeing and feeling the love of Christ and his willingness to save all that would forsake their sins and turn to God through him, and feeling how freely his love and goodness flowed to them, it kindled their love to other souls that were lost in their sins, and an ardent desire that they might come and partake of that spiritual light, life, and comfort, which appeared infinite in its nature and free to all. And under such an overpowering weight of the divine goodness, as tongue could not express, they were constrained to cry out with tears and trembling and testify a full and free salvation in Christ for all that would come, and to warn their fellow creatures of the danger of continuing in sin, and entreating them in the most tender and affectionate manner to turn from it and seek the Lord in sure and certain hope that he would be found. I want to highlight for you something that you need to watch for as we share this story. The primary concern was that a man or woman would totally and completely leave their sin. This revival, as in all revivals that are true revivals, are about leaving your sin behind and being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Revival, how would you define revival, Alexandra? Revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. A new beginning of obedience to God. Yes. Can you say more? What does that mean to you? Uh, quite plainly, it means that we stop sinning and we give ourselves completely to Jesus. So now he owns us. And we have a changed heart. So we only want to do what pleases God. And we're free from every other concern in life. So we can be courageous. We can take what seem like either brave or very stupid stands for Christ. Um... I mean, that's why people are willing to die for Jesus, because they've already been living 
in that total self-sacrifice to him. They've been living as martyrs. Yes. So a physical martyr is just a continuation of what they've already started. Yes. Now, please hear me. We are deliberately sowing the seed of revival in your heart. There is a desperate need that I pray you are beginning to understand. There is a desperate need for revival in all hearts that are continuing to walk in any rebellion or sin against the Almighty King. If you're walking in sin today, you need revival or you will not go to heaven. You will be cast into outer darkness. You will be judged and you will end up in the lake of fire even though you consider yourself a Christian. Hell will be full of so-called Christians. So please, as we share this story of revival, Listen to the Holy Spirit as he begins to speak to your heart. We need the fire of God to come and begin to burn in your heart. Burn in your heart to take you out of the lukewarm condition of lostness where Jesus is about to vomit you out and to bring you into the fullness of the kingdom of God where your, where your greatest concern is the salvation of others because you have received that inner assurance, that inner light, that wonderful change that's supernaturally granted to those who cry out and repent of their sin. So let's continue this story. Yes, so these people in the Kentucky Revival experienced this transformation that we're talking about. They went from just being church-going people to being truly revived and saved Christians. And as a result, they were entreating others to come to Jesus. So under such exhortations, the people they spoke to began to be affected in a very strange manner. At first, they were taken with an inward throbbing of the heart, then with weeping and trembling. From that to crying out, in apparent agony of the soul, falling down and swooning away till every appearance of life was suspended and the person appeared to be in a trance. From this state, they would recover under different sensations, which will be more particularly noticed hereafter. The following extract of a letter dated Cambridge, January 30, 1801, give a striking account of the work as it first appeared in the lower parts of Kentucky and Cumberland. Quote, the work is still increasing in Cumberland. It has overspread the whole country. It is in Nashville, Barron, Muddy, Gasper, Red Banks, and Knoxville. JMC has been there two months. He says it exceeds any he ever saw or heard of. Children and all seem to be engaged, but children are the most active in the work. When they speak, it appears that the Lord sends his spirit to accompany it with power to the hearts of sinners. 
They all seem to be raw in an extraordinary way. The sinners lie as though they were dead for some time, without pulse or breath, some longer, some a shorter time, some rise with joy and triumph, others crying for mercy. As soon as they get comfort, they cry to sinners, exhorting them day and night to turn to the Lord. End quote. It is worthy of notice that a work by which God intended to bring down the pride and loftiness of man should begin in small children. By this it was manifest who were the furthest lost from God, and what course must be taken in order to return. At a sacrament near Flemingsburg, the last Sabbath in April, the power of God was very visible among the people through the whole of the occasion, under which there was much weeping, trembling, and convulsion of soul. But what was the most solemn and striking was the case of two little girls who in the time of the meeting cried out in great distress. They both continued for some time praying and crying for mercy, till one of them received a comfortable hope, and then turning to the other cried out, Oh, you little sinner, come to Christ, take hold of his promise, trust in him, he is able to save to the uttermost. Oh, I have found peace in my soul. Oh, the precious Savior, come just as you are. He will take away the stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. You can't make yourself any better. Just give up your heart to Christ now. You're not a greater sinner than me. You need not wait another moment. Thus she continued exhorting until her little companion received a ray from heaven that produced a sudden and sensible change. Then rising with her in her arms, she cried out in a most affecting manner, Oh, here is another star of light. These children were perhaps nine or ten years old. The Sabbath following, about twenty persons were struck in the congregation of Cabin Creek, Mason County. Among the first who cried out in distress was a girl about twelve years old. Their convictions of their lost state from a sudden opening of that pure holiness to which sin stands directly opposed, were quick as a lightning flash, and came with such weight that had they not in some way or other opened their case, they would have sunk into the horrors of despair. It was dire necessity which at first obliged them to expose themselves to public view as objects of pity, for everything of the kind was looked upon by the generality even of professing Christians as wild enthusiasm or the fruits of a disordered brain. There were, however, a few who understood the disorder and were ready to fly to their relief and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that were bound. And here a new scene was opened. While some trembled like one in a fit of the fever, wept and cried out, lamenting their distance from God and exposedness to his wrath. Others were employed in praying with them, encouraging them to believe on the Son of God, to venture upon his promise, give up their wicked, rebellious heart, just as it was, for God to take it away and give them a heart of flesh, singing hymns and giving thanks to God for the display of his power without any regard to former rules of order. At this, some were offended and withdrew from the assembly, determined to oppose it as a work of the wicked one. 
but all their objections only tended to open the way for the true nature and spirit of the work to shine out and encourage the subjects of it to set out with warmer zeal to promote it. Accordingly, a meeting was appointed a few evenings after, to which a crowd of awakened souls flocked and spent the whole night in singing hymns, praying, exhorting one another, and so forth. At this meeting, one man was struck down and lay for about an hour in the situation above mentioned. This put the matter beyond dispute that the work was supernatural, and the outcry which it raised against sin confirmed a number in the belief that it was from above. You know, as you're reading this, Alexandra, I'm trying to picture this happening in an American church with all of our false sophistication and our sociability and all of our churchanity for the power of God to come into an American church would be so startling and so unlike anything any of us have ever seen. I have no idea how to even try to describe it. It would probably look like people standing up and wailing very loudly. And then my fear would be that someone would just try to escort them out and have everything go back to normal. Quickly. But if that person were then struck and the pastor was struck, I mean, you understand, as we share this story, this is the power of God coming to reveal a person's wickedness and coldness of heart. And we have covered up the, the modern cultural church has covered up the wickedness as it pursues the television and the movies and the internet and all the entertainment that is available at your fingertips, much of it utterly wicked and evil. And so if this was shocking here, it would be much more shocking today. Yes, and these people couldn't just call an ambulance. So that would be another one of my fears is that, oh, well, we're not going to let this be a work of God. We're going to try to call an ambulance. Well, actually, later in this story, they brought doctors who used smelling salts, ammonia. Mm -hmm. They even tried bleeding some of these people. That was the custom of that day, to bleed the poison out of them. They did all kinds of things, and nothing would awaken these people once they were in the presence of God. But when they finally came to, they were transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Astonishing. Yes. We need this today. We need God to come to the church today. We're in desperate need. Yes, and that requires a willingness for us to let God have his way, whatever that is. Now, you come to a church, and you announce a revival meeting, and the people come, and they're so offended by the straight word that as a whole group they say, we're not going back. How long is this going to go on? They're offended. Well, frankly, there is no such thing as a revival without offense. It offends our natural religious sensibilities. 
because it begins to expose our sin. We need revival. Yes. Let's continue the story. So from these small beginnings in Kentucky, the revival gradually spread. The news of the strange operations of God flew abroad and attracted many to come and see, who were convinced not only from seeing and hearing, but feeling, and carried home the testimony that it was the living work of God. This stirred up others and brought out still greater multitudes, and these strange exercises still increasing and having no respect to any stated hours of worship, it was found expedient to encamp on the ground and continue the meeting day and night. To these encampments, the people flocked in hundreds and thousands on foot, on horseback, and in wagons and other carriages. At first appearance, those meetings exhibited nothing to the spectator but a scene of confusion that could scarce be put into human language. They were generally opened with a sermon, near the close of which there would be an unusual outcry, some bursting forth into loud ejaculations of prayer or thanksgiving for the truth, others breaking out in emphatic sentences of exhortation, others flying to their careless friends with tears of compassion, beseeching them to turn to the Lord, some struck with terror and hastening through the crowd to make their escape or pulling away their relatives, others trembling weeping and crying out for the Lord Jesus to have mercy upon them, fainting and swooning away till every appearance of life was gone and the extremities of the body assumed the coldness of a dead corpse. Others surrounding them with melodious songs or fervent prayers for their happy resurrection in the love of Christ. Others collected into circles around this variegated scene, contending with arguments for and against. And under such appearances, the work would continue for several days and nights together. As I read these stories, it strikes me that these are all different responses that happen when we actually believe what's being preached. So to sit there and not respond is just evidence that you don't actually believe the message. Whereas these people they believed in the holiness of God, his wrath against sin, and so they turned to prayer, they turned to thanksgiving, they turned to encouraging others, they turned to crying out for mercy, to rejoicing if they had been saved. I'll continue. I shall now mention particularly some of the first meetings of this kind with a few accompanying circumstances from which the work took a general spread in the year 1801. The first meeting was held at Cabin Creek. It began on the 22nd of May and continued four days and three nights. The scene was awful beyond description. The falling, crying out, praying, exhorting, singing, shouting, etc., exhibited such new and striking evidences of a supernatural power that few, if any, could escape without being affected. Such as tried to run from it were frequently struck on the way or impelled by some alarming signal to return. And so powerful was the evidence on all sides that no place was found 
for the obstinate sinner to shelter himself, but under the protection of prejudiced and bigoted professing Christians. No circumstance at this meeting appeared more striking than the great numbers that fell on the third night, and to prevent their being trodden underfoot by the multitude, they were collected together and laid out in order on two squares of the meeting house, which like so many dead corpses covered a considerable part of the floor. There were persons at this meeting from Cambridge, Concord, Eagle Creek, and other neighboring congregations who partook of the spirit of the work, which was a particular means of its spreading. The next general camp meeting was held at Concord in the county of Bourbon about the last of May or beginning of June. The number of people was supposed to be about 4,000 who attended this occasion. There were present seven Presbyterian ministers, four of whom were opposed to the work and spoke against it until the fourth day about noon. The evidence then became so powerful that they all professed to be convinced that it was the work of God and one of them addressed the assembly with tears, acknowledging that notwithstanding they had long been praying to the Lord to pour out his spirit, yet when it came they did not know it, but wickedly opposed the answer of their own prayers. On this occasion, no sex nor color, class nor description were exempted from the pervading influence of the spirit. Even from the age of eight months, to 60 years, there were evident subjects of this marvelous operation of God. The meeting continued five days and four nights, and after the people generally scattered from the ground, numbers convened in different places, and continued the exercise much longer. And even when they were not collected together, these wonderful operations continued among every class of people, and in every situation in their houses and fields, and in their daily employments, falling down and crying out under conviction, or singing and shouting with unspeakable joy, were so common that the whole country round about seemed to be leavened with the spirit of the work. The next camp meeting was at Eagle Creek, Adams County, Ohio. It began June 5 and continued four days and three nights. The number of people there was not so great as the country was new, but the work was equally powerful according to the number. At this meeting, the principal leading characters in that place fully embraced the spirit of the work, which laid a permanent foundation for its continuance and spread in that quarter. The next general meeting was at Pleasant Point, Kentucky, which equaled if not surpassed any that had been before. Here. The Christian minister, so-called, the common Christian, the professed deist and degenerate, were forced to take one common lot among the wounded, and confess with equal candor that hitherto they had been total strangers to the religion of Jesus. From this meeting, the work was spread extensively through Bourbon, Fayette, and other neighboring counties, and was carried by a number of its subjects to the south side of Kentucky where it found a permanent residence in the hearts of many. The general meeting at Indian Creek, Harrison County, began the 24th of July and continued about five days and nights. To this meeting, the subjects of the work were generally collected from all quarters and abundantly strengthened each other in the indiscriminate exercises of prayer, 
exhortation, singing, shouting, and leaping for joy. But there was very little appearance of that power which strikes conviction to the heart of the sinner until the third day about two o'clock in the afternoon. A boy from appearance about twelve years old retired from the stand in time of preaching under a very extraordinary impression, and having mounted a log at some distance and raising his voice in a very affecting manner, he attracted the main body of the people in a few minutes. With tears streaming from his eyes, he cried aloud to the wicked, warning them of their danger, denouncing their certain doom if they persisted in their sins, expressing his love for their souls, and desire that they would turn to the Lord and be saved. He was held up by two men, and spoke for about an hour, with that convincing eloquence that could be inspired only from above. When his strength seemed quite exhausted, and language failed to describe the feelings of his soul, he raised his hand, and dropping his handkerchief, wet from sweat from his little face, cried out, Thus, O sinner, shall you drop into hell, unless you forsake your sins and turn to the Lord. At that moment, some fell like those who are shot in battle, and the work spread in a manner which human language cannot describe. What do you think? This is shocking. This is God stepping in, going beyond any human ability, and sovereignly affecting revival, repentance, turning to God. This became the foundation of what America was all about. A godly people, a people who would walk in obedience to the Most High God, establishing the moral values of a nation, and today we see those moral values being utterly destroyed, the proclamation of homosexuality and every other unclean thing is promoted today. Corruption, theft, every unclean thing is being lifted up on television or the internet. And the men and women, for the most part, most of you I'm speaking to now are not offended by this. Oh, you may not like it, but you're not offended and you're not eagerly speaking with friends and family and saying, look, this can't continue. We have to have God. There has to be a change, Alexandra. What I think of when we read about people falling down like this is so it's not unheard of, say, when a wife finds out that her husband has been killed on active duty for her to faint. It's not unusual when we have sudden changes in our lives and we have sudden revelations for us to have a strong emotional response or to even faint and go unconscious for some time. And so that's what we're seeing here. It's not like these people don't have any feelings or thoughts as this is happening, but their mind is so anguished and distressed by their sins when they see how holy God is and how evil they have been. 
and this is true for all of us. It's not like these people were exceptionally evil people. They were probably more righteous than some of you who are listening. But the point is that when we compare to the holiness of God, we're just, we ought to be crying out in agony if we're still in any sin, if we're still sinning. It says, when this young man, this boy, when his strength seemed quite exhausted and language failed to describe the feelings of his soul, he raised his hand and dropping his handkerchief wet from sweat from his little face, cried out, Thus, O sinner, shall you drop into hell unless you forsake your sins and turn to the Lord. At that moment, some fell like those who were shot in battle, and the work spread in a manner which human language cannot describe. You see, this can't happen among people who believe that you can continue to walk in your sin and be saved. Of what purpose would it be for God to send his Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin if you already have a false hidey cave that you've ducked into that says when you die, death will be your savior and you'll be made righteous. But probably a lot of these people believed that until this revival came, and then they realized how wrong they had been. You're right. They were Calvinists. Yes. They were Calvinists. Okay, well, let's go on the next paragraph. The next general meeting was at Cambridge, Bourbon County, seven miles from Paris. It began the 6th of August and continued day and night about a week. The number of people collected on the ground at once was supposed to be about 20,000, but it was thought a much greater number were there in the course of the meeting. The encampment consisted of 135 wheel carriages and tents proportioned to the people. This immense group included almost every character that could be named, named. But amidst them all, the subjects of this new and strange operation were distinguished by their flaming zeal for the destruction of sin and the deliverance of souls from its power. Amen. The various operations and exercises on that occasion were indescribable. The falling exercises were the most noted. James Crawford, one of the oldest ministers in the state, and one of the foremost in the work, informed me that he kept as accurate an account as he could of the number that fell on the occasion and computed it to be about 3,000. So out of 20,000 people, about 3,000 of them fell down under the power of God and appeared to be dead. The vast numbers who received light on this occasion and went forth in every direction to spread it render it impossible to pursue any further the particular track of progress. I shall only add that it was but a few weeks after this meeting that the same work broke out in North Carolina by the instrumentality of some who went from Cambridge to bear the testimony. And because this huge meeting took place at Cambridge, 
the Kentucky Revival is sometimes referred to as the Cane Ridge Revival, but it was much larger than just this one gathering. Yes. And we notice, too, that God used the testimony of these people as instruments. He didn't just pop in and bring revival in North Carolina, but he used the testimony of those who had already been revived to bring the revival. Yes. Well, then the author wants to begin to take notice of the opposition which was raised against the work in the first stage of it and show some of the causes from which it had sprung. The people among whom the revival began were generally Calvinists, and although they had long been praying, asking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and believing that God had foreordained whatever comes to pass, yet when it came to pass that their prayer was answered, and the Spirit began to flow like many waters from a cloud of witnesses, and souls were convicted of sin and cried for mercy and found hope and comfort in the news of a Savior, they rose up and quarreled with the work, because it did not come to pass through the subjects of it willing to adopt their souls to the stupefying creed of Calvinism. Those who had labored and travailed to gain some solid hope of salvation and had ventured their souls upon the covenant of promise and felt the living seal of eternal love could not dare not preach that salvation was restricted to a certain definite number nor insinuate that any being which God had made was by the Creator laid under the dire necessity of being damned forever. The love of a Savior constrained them to testify that one had died for all. This truth, so essential to the first ray of hope in the human breast, was like a dead fly in the ointment to the Calvinist. Hence all this trembling, weeping, and groaning under sin, rejoicing in the hope of deliverance, and turning from the former practice of it, sent forth a very disagreeable savor. Yet these exercises would no doubt have passed for a good work of God had they appeared as seals to their doctrine of election and final perseverance. But everything now appeared new and to claim no relation to the old bed of sand upon which they'd been building and rather than quit the old foundation they chose to reject oppose and persecute the truth, accompanying with all that evidence which many of them were obliged to acknowledge was divine. Some who were inwardly opposed at first exercised forbearance and professed a measure of union with the work in hopes that it would die away like former revivals and the people returned to their old order but as they perceived that it increased, they laid aside the mask and came out with bold testimony against it as a dangerous delusion. In some of the churches, there were days set apart for fasting and prayer to depreciate the divine displeasure through which they supposed it was sent upon the land. These public testimonies against the work 
particularly by ministers, were a means of stirring up and encouraging those who were openly wicked to come forth and mock, oppose, and persecute. But even such were often unable to withstand the power and sometimes, in the very act of persecuting and afflicting, they were struck down like men in battle, and so alarming was the sight that others on foot or on horseback would try to make their escape and flee away like those who were closely pursued by an enemy in a time of war, only to be overtaken by the invisible power under which they would be struck down and constrained to cry out in anguish and confess their wickedness in persecuting the work of God and to warn others not to oppose it. Thus many who were openly profane were taken in the very act of persecuting the work and like Saul of Tarsus made the happy subjects and zealous promoters of it while bigoted professors who had hissed them on remained like the like the heat in the desert that seeth not when good comes. Now one person in particular here alluded to who went on this important mission was John Rankin, minister of the Presbyterian Church at Gasper, Logan County. The first who received the spirit of revival in the place and under whose ministry the extraordinary work began. Since that time, he has escaped from the old house of the Antichrist, divided against itself with the major part of his Gasper congregation, and he has embraced the gospel of Christ's second appearing. You know, when I I read this story, Alexander, my heart is deeply stirred. For we have utterly devoted ourselves to the work of revival in Washington, D.C. That is the cry of our hearts. Revivalnow.church. That's the cry of our hearts. And we've seen some interesting reactions. One man said, How long are you going to allow this to continue? As though this were some kind of poison. When revival comes, it divides people. You have those who are angry, upset, self-righteous. And you have others whose hearts are strangely warmed and the fire of God begins to burn in them and they begin to confess their sin and turn from their wickedness. You have some of the intellectuals who stand afar off and cast stones and say, this is just extremism, it will pass. You know, we need today the power of God to come and it again will divide. It will cause consternation. It will cause men and women to make a decision. Do you want Jesus or do you want your religion? Do you want to go Sunday after Sunday to an event, a social event? 
For if you want to be totally changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ and have his spirit fill you, all true religion is experimental. All true religion is of the Holy Spirit, of, as they used to say, the Holy Ghost. It is not dry and orthodox. It is filled with the presence and spirit of God. It is filled with it is filled with conviction for sin. Now we don't have much time left, but we probably could take one quick call. Our phone number is 877 534 0780. As we wait to see if there's a call, Alexandra, where can people find out more? So you can listen to this broadcast as well as past radio messages on our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. We're also on iTunes and a number of other podcasting services under National Prayer Chapel Pilgrim's Progress. As far as the revival meetings, we had another revival meeting last night. We're meeting every Monday night at the All Saints Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. You can find all of that information at revivalnow.church. That's revivalnow.church. And if you'd like to be a part of this revival move of what God is calling forth, you're welcome to come and attend the meeting next Monday night. There will be a revival meeting every Monday night. You're also welcome to donate and help cover the expenses of this radio broadcast and of this work of revival. We're coming to the end of the month, and again, the radio bill will be due. And you can send that check to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195 or you can go online and you can go to nationalprayerchapel.com touch the donate button and you can give online I'm very grateful for those of you who came last night from our radio listening audience I love meeting men and women who have been touched by the word of God who are earnest and seeking after Jesus. That's what happened last night. So we don't have very much time left in this broadcast, Alexandra. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Yes. Uh, as I've thought about revival, I realized that this, this situation where people have to choose, that really comes out of Christians actually taking a position that makes that possible. So if you as a Christian take a revival stance, then it will be plain whether others are with you or against you. And that really means whether they're with God or against God. And so there's no reason to not have a dividing line. It's up to Christians to take a position 
where that dividing line is plain, and then that just utterly eliminates this illusion of a middle ground while we do nothing for God. Uh, that being said, if you would like to volunteer at the revival meetings, you can fill out a volunteer application at revivalnow.church. It's so clear to us that the heart of God is revival. That the heart of God is to turn his people away from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He is calling you. Will you respond to the revival message and begin to pray and seek the face of God? Will you repent of your sin and cast off all darkness? Will you turn off the constant feed of everything from movies to professional sports to video games, those things that deaden your mind and prevent you from being able to reach the throne of God? Is it your heart to have Jesus Almighty God, we come today with revival on our hearts, earnestly seeking you for Washington, D.C., and for our nation, asking, Lord, that men and women would turn from their wicked ways. Lord, would you cause men and women to hate their sin and turn toward you, Jesus, and hunger and thirst after you until they find you. Lord, we praise you and we honor you. Glory, glory, glory to your name. Thank you, Jesus. Bless each person who has listened today and call them upward. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, my brother, my sister. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. And I'm Alexandra, and we're from the National Prayer Chapel. We'd love to have you come visit us this Sunday at the All Saints Anglican Church. You'll find us there at 12 noon, beginning to pray. Come and join us if you want revival. We'll talk to you soon. God bless you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.